this little nugget of history that I kind of forgot about. You know, when I first watched Barbed Wire Pioneers, as I mentioned, you know, in the previous interview, that I wasn't I wasn't wowed by Barbed Wire at the time. You know, it makes a lot more sense to me now. But rewatching the documentary, what kind of struck me, uh, although I do have to admit, it did seem like kind of a marketing ploy because this was done by the NIU communications department and the last 20 minutes of the documentary are about how NIU came to be. So that did seem a little self-serving in a humorous way. Nonetheless, it was fascinating how these three pioneers of industry, um, kings of the town, came together to bring Northern Northern Illinois University to DeKalb. Tell me about this, Steve. And in order to do it, they put their long-standing personal animosities their business animosities aside. They wanted a new fabric for the town. And the state normal school proved to be what they were looking for. Now, I've been told this years ago by the longtime university historian who's deceased, Earl Hader. He wrote a several hundred page history of NIU in 1974 for the school's 75th anniversary entitled Education in Transition, the History of Northern Illinois University. And he told me that while he did not put this fact in his book, while he did his research, he found hard evidence that Isaac Elwood, who was on the site selection committee for where the school was to be be built, bribed at least two of the trustees to the other site selection committee members to win their votes for DeKalb. I just assumed that was the case. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, especially because in the documentary, it talks about how he was on the board and like one of his other buddies was on the board and Altgeld, the governor, was involved and it's named after Altgeld. Like, really, you don't think money was changing hands there? (laughs) So it it doesn't surprise me. Uh, so, so the interesting point that you bring up is they put aside their animosity. That's actually not a small thing. You know, that, I don't want to gloss over that because these guys were in heavy, they were in legal battles for 20 years. And even after all that, you know, I wanted to mention this kind of cool fact, which just, it just proves how stupid, you know, men of industry can be. Because after all this, they fought, they gave, you know, two million dollars, I think, you know, which is that's not even in converted into our dollars. Right. Millions of dollars went into that's, this legal that's battle. The that he claimed when he wrote his memoirs in 1910 that both sides had spent in their various legal battles. It's a lot of money, you know, and it's really just wasted because at the end of it all, correct me if I'm wrong here, but in I think one of and I got this from the documentary is that essentially the uh, Hayes paid. The Glidden, which was then Glidden, Elwood, Moen, and Washburn Company, uh, paid them 75 cents per 100 pounds right. for the use of their wire stretcher – or no, for the use of their barbs uh, patents. And then the the Glidden, Elwood, Washburn, and Moen Company paid uh, Hayes 75 cents per 100 pounds for the use of their wire stretcher, which essentially all kind of came out into a wash, you know? Right. Right, for all intents and purposes. Right, if they had just agreed to that originally, (laughs) they would have just been able to make who knows how much money. The story is told also that uh, uh, 
before they finally came to that agreement, he kept coming up with little roadblocks that he was throwing in the way of, of the final agreement. And finally, one of his lawyers told him, like, hey, you're crazy. You've got to come to a settlement. <laughs> that sounds like Haish. Um, a little self-destructive, but uh, but and it's funny that the lawyers said that because the lawyers are the ones making bank on all this stuff. They're yeah. the ones showing oh, up in yeah. court. But that tells you how flabbergasted and exasperated he was that he's the but one that, who mentions, hey, take it that easy. That mansion of Haish's was so flamboyant architecturally it fit his personality to a team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so these guys, you know, these guys are in heated battles. They're they're not exactly fans of each other, and they all came together um, for the good of the community to to bring the university here. And it's the, kind of the, not only a joint financial effort, but also the political connections because these guys were we didn't even get into like how involved they were in the community and politics right. and everything like that. And you know, Teddy over Roosevelt the years too, and, I've been told that Rockford, which is really the the major contender against NIU being located in DeKalb had a better site where the school could have been built, had more money that could have been used to, to buy a site, but the politicians in Rockford were not in line. Elwood Gooden and Ace carried the day in DeKalb. So now, how did they pull that off? I mean, it, it doesn't help that Elwood was called the colonel by the governor, and I believe he had connections to Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah. Um, so those kind of things don't help or don't hurt at all. But how did they pull this off? They had the community solidly behind their effort to bring Northern Illinois State Normal School to the town. And years later, when, well, in the, in the early 1900s, when DeKalb applied for funding through the Carnegie Corporation for a public library building. When word got out into the community that the city was trying to get money from Andrew Carnegie for a library, people rose up in arms and said, Why are we Andrew Carnegie's money? We've got Isaac Elwood, Joseph Gordon, and Jacob Hayes, the barbed wire barons with their millions. Why are we need Andrew Carnegie's money for a library? And it wound up eventually that Hayes left the money when he died for the public library. Wow. And it's also interesting Carnegie was involved in steel, which is yeah. you know, kind of what they were. So it's, it's all kind of the same money. You know, it's kind of interesting in a way. It's crazy because there were, not only was Rockford, I mean, essentially Rockford was the right choice. You know, besides that if these three didn't live in DeKalb, it would, the city, the school would be in Rockford right now. But even Dixon was involved in the conversations, and that's where Reagan ended up growing up. Dixon was involved in sort of the little town of Polo in Lee County, north of Dixon. There are several, several small communities that nobody had ever heard of. And still to this day, people rarely have ever have heard of that wanted that normal school. Yeah. Now, who the three of these guys put their money together, and it was, it was Alt-Geld, Hall, Alt-Geld Hall that was built first, correct? Right. That was constructed between 1895 and 1899. And actually, when they opened in September of 1899, the building wasn't 100% complete. How did the governor get his name put on it? More money thrown around here? Clinton Rosette, who was the editor of the Cal Chronicle from 1879 when the paper first started until Joseph Gooden's death in 
1906, and then bought the paper from Glidden's estate, had been appointed, well, had, had supported Altgeld's bid to become governor of Illinois, and sold Altgeld on the idea that the state needed more normal schools spread around the state, and suggested that there needed, especially needed to be one in northern Illinois. Altgeld, meanwhile, after he got elected, appointed Rosette to the State Board of Education. And Altgeld is quoted as having said, the public architecture in the state of Illinois is such an embarrassment to the citizens of Illinois. Every building looks like a shop or a warehouse. There's no architectural distinction to any of them. During my years as governor, every public building constructed has got to look like a castle. He was born in Germany, like Hayes had been, was familiar with the old castles along the Rhine River, and used them as his model. That makes so much sense, because that's exactly what Alka looks like. Yeah, there were 18 architects from around Illinois and, and other parts of the country that submitted renderings for the normal school building, as it was originally called. Charles Brush, who was a native of Carbondale, had his bid accepted. And then that's how the building was put together, and that's how he got his name on it, and it is the cornerstone of NIU, um, and it, it's amazing. It wasn't named for all until the 1960s. I think it was 1963 or 1964, they decided to adopt all the old name for it and stop calling it the normal school building or the administration building or the castle on the hill. Oh, I didn't realize that. So how, yeah. well, how did they decide? Oh, so that makes it a little bit, a little less uh, devious that they would name. I thought they named it after him originally. They didn't. No, so, no so not why did they the pick 1960s. him? So did they pick him because he had so much influence on the architecture? You know, like well, again. Uh, with the exception of Western Illinois out at Macomb, all the other state schools have castle-like buildings that were constructed during Altgeld's term. U of I, oh, I see. has a Romanesque Revival-style building that is their Altgeld Hall, but it's still dated from John Peter Altgeld's time as governor. Uh, Northern, Southern, Eastern, and Illinois State along with U of I, all had their Altgeld halls, all, all built during Altgeld's four years as governor. The first building, the first building out at Western in Macomb looks like a big county courthouse. It's a, a, a classical revival-style building, but Altgeld had left office by the time Western was established. Northern got additional support in having a, a normal school established in this part of the state because Charleston, where Eastern Illinois is located, also wanted to have a new normal school. So the two, the, the two factions joined forces for the passage of the bill that created both Northern and Eastern. I do want to end on this one really cool story, yeah. which kind of encompasses how basically how NIU ended up in DeKalb. Because um, it's essentially hook or by crook or by deal, um, you know, decide deal. And that's the story of how they how they dammed up the Kishwaukee River 
um, to impress the locals or to impress the school board. So tell me that story. The person who supposedly was responsible for damming up the Kishwaukee River was John Glidden, Joseph Glidden's favorite nephew, who was superintendent of the power company at the time. John's daughter, Jesse Glidden, who died uh, about 2001 or 2002 in her early 90s, years ago told me that her father was was the one that was responsible for damming up the river. Apparently that spring was very dry. The river was rather low, wasn't very impressive looking. The town supposedly went without water for something like a week in order for the water to be held back. In the morning that the site selection committee arrived in DeKalb, they opened up the dam the water flowed into the river, the water level rose, and supposedly there was a fisherman in a rowboat on the river <laughs> who happened to be catching a fish as the site selection committee came by. What are the odds, Steve? What are the odds? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's funny because, like, this, so this story. Uh, and didn't didn't Elwood say something like the uh, you know the rivers never looked drier? When he... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know it's funny because if you spent any time there, the Kishwaukee River is not exactly an impressive stream of water. No, it's uh, one that you'll never see a, a casino boat on. <laughs> right? Yeah, you definitely. Yeah, forget casino boat. You're never likely to see a guy in a rowboat um, fishing. Um, but that's you know that's an incredible story, and sometimes you have to do these things. You got to really want it, and DeKalb proved that they really wanted to have this school there. And then, of course, when the school did did finally open in 1899, they held a three day celebration that they called the Crimson Days, and the Queen of the Crimson Days celebration happened to be Isaac Elwood's daughter, Jessie Elwood Ray. Coincidences abound in this story, I'm sure. In 1956, um, she was supposed to be the queen of the DeKalb City Centennial celebration. She was 88 years old at the time. Died about three weeks before the event oh. was to take place, and they had to hold a competition to select a replacement for her. Oh. Jesse, though, from what I had been told by people over the years, was always the favorite of the Elwood daughters and was the last of Isaac Elwood's children. She died in 1956 at 88. Survived all her various brothers and sisters. That's incredible. I mean, it's, you know, and, and, the cool thing is that NIU was built, Altgelt Hall was built on the same site. We mentioned this earlier, but it's good to tie it up with a little button on the same site that the three of these men first got the idea for barbed wire. Right. The only two times in history that the three of them could share a space. Um, pretty incredible stuff. That is a real coincidence. That's not one that is created or manipulated by anyone trying to to change the course of history okay. uh, that's a pretty imp that's a pretty impressive little tidbit there so that is the incredible history of of DeKalb uh, and how NIU got there uh, 
impressive stuff. Steve, thank you so much for keeping all this knowledge in your head and being the living, walking encyclopedia that you are. So thank you for this. I've written and spoken so many times over the last 45 years on the topic of DeKalb County history, barbed wire, NIU, what have you. Thank you for that, Steve, and I hope everyone enjoyed listening to a little extra bonus episode about how these barbed wire barons brought Northern Illinois University to the farming town of DeKalb, Illinois.